so. Okay, we are uh, today uh, in uh, Romans 16, and we got a uh, bang-up start in Romans 16 last week. We made it through verse 1. <laughs> a little bit into verse 2. And uh, so uh, the uh, study sheet that I handed out last week uh, that was ostensibly dated for, or was ostensibly for this week, but was incorrectly dated anyway, <laughs> will be for next week. Uh, so, uh, if that didn't confuse you, I've done my best. But in Romans uh, 16, uh, Paul uh, makes uh, basically a shift. He has now concluded the. Uh, the bulk uh, of his letter to the Roman Christians and uh, is now in the closing uh, stages of his letter. And uh, they wrote letters backwards back then. Uh, They put the greetings and things at the end of letters at the beginning of the letter. I don't know why and I don't know what great scientific discovery taught us that we should put our greetings at the beginning of a letter (laughs) instead of at the end. But But obviously... Uh, in uh, those days, they put their greetings at the end. And so uh, that's where we are. Uh, and, uh, and we are oftentimes, I'm afraid, inclined to uh, kind of just slide through those greetings and uh, comments that come at the end of Paul's and the other epistles. But we must remind ourselves that all Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So there is a reason why the Holy Spirit has these greetings uh, and uh, other comments that come at the end of this letter and Paul's other epistles as well. So, uh, so last week we started looking in, uh, in verse 1 and we began to talk about this woman, Phoebe, and... Uh, uh, and we tried to explore a lot of the background information that we know about the time and the place, etc., and, and things that are related to Phoebe. And so what are some of the things you remember from last week that we talked about about this woman? What do we know about her? Uh, it's amazing that we could uh, <coughs> explore and discover so much when there's actually just these two verses in all of Scripture about her. But what do we know about her? What can we piece together from the evidence that we have? She's from the city of Kincrea. And where is Kincrea? Okay, yes. It's, uh, it's down there at the southern tip of what is now the, the uh, peninsula of Greece. Okay. And, uh, and it's kind of a, there's a very narrow stretch of land there. Uh, there towards the southern end of the peninsula. And Corinth, I drew, I drew a feeble map up here for you last week, but Corinth is on the western side of that little strip or isthmus of land. And Kincrea is on the, uh, is on the eastern side. And, uh, and what is the relationship between Kincrea and Corinth? Okay, they're port cities. And Kincrea basically serves as the eastern port city for Corinth. So there's a close association or connection with... Why are we even talking about Kincrea? What does this have to do with Phoebe? 
Okay, that's where she's from. She's there is a church in Kincrea, and uh, and uh, Phoebe is from that church. Uh, what else do we know about Phoebe? Okay. So her family, she's obviously Okay. So here we have a woman who's obviously born into a very pagan household, named after a pagan goddess, and uh, and raised, uh, or at least lives now. We uh, see is now lives in this. Corinthian area, okay, and so we understand, we know about the the culture and the debauchery and the sinfulness, the wickedness of that uh, of that city and of that area, and uh, and so so we have this woman who is uh, who is born into this pagan environment and lives within this pagan environment, but she has. Uh, obviously at some point come to Christ. She's heard the gospel. She's been born again. She's been transformed from uh, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You know? so, so she is this woman, Phoebe. And like I say, we only have these two verses in all of Scripture about her. But she is like us. She is a trophy of God's grace. She is a, she is a, she is a miracle. She is a walking miracle, just like you are a walking miracle. Okay, I don't know how you think about that. What a miracle you are! But if you are in Christ, uh, considering what He has brought you out of and saved you from, you are a miracle, and she is such a miracle. Okay, what else do we know about her? Well, Paul obviously knew who she was because. Okay, great, good. So this is the only person who is mentioned in the entire book, and particularly in chapter sixteen, the only person who is mentioned who is going to Rome, okay, uh, that Paul is aware of or has talked about going to Rome. So commentators are virtually unanimous in concluding that she is the bearer of this Roman epistle. She's the one who's carrying it. What's significant about that? Yes, he's had an effect in your life. We've been studying this book now for two years, and she has had an impact in your life. And we talked about the fact that she's a she. Okay, it's really pretty remarkable. We talked about uh, uh, we talked about how God, uh, at least a couple times that we talked about last week, when God specifically has chosen women to carry a very important message. Of course, the first and most obvious one is the resurrection. That it was women that God first entrusted with that message to the world of the resurrection of the Son of God. And, uh, and that is very significant. As we said, it's actually one of the evidences of the resurrection. That it was women rather than men who first brought the message of the resurrection. And uh, we won't take time to go into all that again, but, 
<laughs> and and then when you think about it, we have here the Epistle of Romans, which is uh, which is probably I would say the premier, the primary doctrinal statement of the early church. This is the most explicit explanation of the gospel in the first century. And this gospel message and this explanation, this detailed explanation of the gospel is entrusted to a woman to take from Corinth to Rome. And, you know, nowadays we wouldn't think much about that. But back then, you know, traveling in those days, as we know, was a very hazardous affair. When we read of Paul's accounts of his experience traveling in that time, you know, shipwrecked three times in danger of robbers and et cetera. So he talks about all the perils that he encountered as he traveled around the Mediterranean world. And here is this woman who is traveling uh, now from Corinth to Rome and, and presumably uh, the difficulties encountered and the dangers encountered were similar for her as they were for Paul. And, and it is to this woman that God has entrusted and that Paul has entrusted this very important epistle that we are still studying and learning from today. So to me, it's an exciting affirmation of the role and the significance and the importance of women in the New Testament church. And this was a, this was a radical cultural shift. Uh, the elevation of women that we see in the New Testament church. And uh, so uh, that's something else. What else do we know and learn about this woman? Probably would have been wealthy being traveling. I would assume she would probably have to travel with an entourage. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. She probably took great care. And, and uh, as you mentioned, we believe she's wealthy. And some things that we're going to look at in verse 2 indicate that she is apparently a fairly wealthy woman. And uh, so apparently fairly influential. And last week we talked about the fact, we'll talk a little bit more about this today, uh, that she is apparently in Rome on business. Maybe some kind of business matter or legal matter that she is involved in in going to Rome. So she's apparently uh, a businesswoman of some kind and apparently a fairly uh, a fairly able one at that. Okay? Well, I was just thinking about that. I actually thought of three or four possibilities. Wealthy was just one of them. I, I don't know necessarily why we would think that is the state. I don't know what the state of missionaries was back then. We know all of them to one. Could have been a missionary. Could have been a family. Uh, well, one of them, another possibility was just on vacation. Took a vacation holiday. I don't know. Could have been that her family was set up, kind of like my family. When Linda and I got married and we started having children, she did not. She quit the workforce. And was, you know, when the kids got older, she started going back and doing things. Mm-hmm. Basically, freed up her time to do whatever she mm-hmm. did. So maybe her family is like that. Yeah. Well, of course, you have to, you, but you have to factor in the culture. And the culture for a woman to be in that kind of a position is a totally different thing than it is today. Today, we don't think much of it. Uh, but in the culture of that day, uh, for a woman to be in a position of influence culturally, uh, socially and culturally uh, like that is, uh, is more unusual and when we're talking about the business world or the business so community. The conclusion there is to be in that position is uh, it, it wouldn't be the kind of thing that would normally happen to a woman. It's not like a, it's not like when women got 
when women got free of their children, they just normally went into business. And, you know, it's not the kind of a thing that a woman would do in that culture. Uh, I think possibly uh, just speculation on my part, but I think uh, she uh, seems, seems to be single. There's no mention of a husband here. Uh, she seems to be traveling without her husband. And so I've wondered if maybe uh, her husband had passed away and that he was actually maybe the original owner of a of a, some kind of a business or something and she inherited it or received it from her husband. Uh, just speculation. We don't we don't really know. Okay. Anything else? Well, let's go on because we really didn't finish as long as we talked about Phoebe last week. We really didn't finish because we didn't get to verse two, uh, except just to kind of allude to it at a couple points where Paul uh, gives the church in Rome some instructions about Phoebe. Okay, uh, he did. He did commend her, and we talked about how how uh, this is actually a typical formula here uh, for letters of commendation. We talked about letters of commendation that were passed around uh, in uh, the ancient world, and particularly in the New Testament era, in order to introduce someone to to somebody that they didn't know. We still use, as I mentioned last week, we use letters of commendation even in the church today. Uh, we receive people into membership sometimes because we have received a letter of commendation from another church. And they said, uh, you know, such and such a person has been saved. They've been baptized by immersion uh, and they are in good standing in our church and they are traveling to your city. They're moving to your city. And uh, so we would encourage you to receive them into your fellowship. And we oftentimes receive people uh, by letters of commendation. And so they're actually still practiced, particularly in the church today. So so he sent this letter of commendation with uh, Phoebe. And and then he gives the specific instructions in verse two that you receive her, he says, in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself also has been a helper of many and of myself as well. And in, in, in addition to the specific instructions that Paul gives us here or gives to the Roman Christians regarding Phoebe, we also learn some more things about her. Uh, she was, as we saw in verse 1, a servant of the church in Cancrea. We talked uh, a little bit of review here again. We talked about what does that mean? Is, was there an actual official position of a deaconess in the New Testament church? And some people believe that there was and, and cite this as one of the evidences for that. Because the word that's translated servant there is can be translated as deacon or deaconess, and uh, so uh, so we we talked a little bit about that. I I lean towards the conclusion that she was not holding an official position like a deaconess would be, but rather that she was more of an informal servant to the church, and we'll see a little bit more about that in in just a minute. So I I don't conclude that there's any substantial evidence in the New Testament for the office of deaconesses, although I certainly acknowledge that there are passages that uh, people can interpret that way and understand that way. Uh, but his, his admonition to them is that they receive her uh, in the Lord in a manner that's worthy of the saints. And, and as I thought about that, I, I, I was reminded of the things we were talking about in Romans 14. Where Paul, uh, remember Paul beginning there in Romans 14, he, he exhorts the, the Roman Christians who are, he says, uh, uh, later he identifies them as the strong, but he says, I, he says, I urge you to accept those who are weak in faith. And we talked about 
how that idea of acceptance, it's actually a different word than the word receive here, but uh, the idea of acceptance was to include them in your fellowship, bring them in to your love feast, let them sit at the Lord's table with you and take the Lord's Supper together. That's the idea that's communicated there in Romans 14, that, that, that there are... There are believers in your midst and you differ about things. You have different opinions about things. But I want you to sit down and take the Lord's table together. I want you to commune together. I want you to fellowship together. And uh, so we saw that in chapter 14. And in one sense, I think, even though, like I say, it's a different word here, I think it's still kind of the sense that Paul Paul is communicating here. In other words, don't just... Don't just take this epistle out of her hand and kind of pat her on the back and say thank you and let it go at that. But I want you to receive her. I want you to take her into your fellowship. I want her to be able to take of the Lord's Supper with you, to be in your prayer meetings together, to listen to the teaching of God's Word together, to be, to be part of your intimate Christian fellowship together. That's what he's urging. But then he says, he says, I want you to do it in the Lord. Now, that's one of Paul's throwaway lines, right? Whenever he says, in the Lord, we just kind of throw that one away because it's, you know, we just hear it so often. Well, no, it's not a throwaway line. Paul put that in there. The Holy Spirit put that in there for a reason. He says, I want you to receive her in the Lord. And, and what it reminds us of is one of the absolutely astonishing privileges that we have as Christians to do things in the Lord's name. What are some of the things that the Scripture teaches us that we're to do in the Lord's name? Pardon? We're to pray in the Lord's name. Okay, So when we go to the Father in Heaven and we have a request, we are to pray, he says, teaches us this in John 14, we are to pray in His name, in the Lord Jesus' name. Okay, And we often usually do that, right? We pray and at the end of our prayers we say, in Jesus' name. Okay, What else are we to do in the Lord's name? To give a cup of cold water, basically, to help other people. Okay, so there are acts of charity that we engage in and we are to do them... In the Lord's name. What else? Pardon? Okay, we're to work as unto the Lord. Yeah, that's a little bit different idea there, I think. Uh, the idea there being that we're working as though we're working for the Lord. Uh, but, uh, but kind of the same. What else? What about little children? Remember what the Lord says? He who what receives one of these in my name, right? Okay, so we are to receive little children in the Lord's name. Okay, uh, what else do we do in the Lord's name? You're doing it right now, as a matter of fact. At least I hope you are. Uh, okay, we're praising Him, uh, but. 
Gather together in the Lord's name, okay? And it becomes, when we are gathered together in the Lord's name, that gives us certain prerogatives. So in Matthew chapter 18, he says that when two or three are gathered together in my name, he says, then you, when you are in that situation, then you are in a place in which you can, and in Matthew 18, the situation is uh, that he's discussing there is the prospective uh, the prospect of, of, of uh, correction and church discipline, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, so there are a number of things that we discover as believers that we have now because we are His children that we can do in the Lord's name. What does it mean, though? If we're to receive a child, if we're praying in His name, if we're to meet together in His, what does that mean when we're doing something in the Lord's name? Okay, one, one thing it means is, is that we are representing Him. We are standing in His place. It's as if He's not actually here physically, and we are His physical presence here. So, when, when I am acting in the Lord's name, I am acting as Christ would act if He were physically here. Okay? So, I am His representative. What else does it mean? Okay. Okay. That kind of going in the direction I'm looking for. How about you know the old, you know the old cops and robbers programs on TV? You know, and a guy comes and he knocks on the door and he says, "Open up." What? In the name of all, what's he saying? He says, I have the authority of the law. I'm requiring you to open up because I am here under the authority of the law. Uh, I hope there was nobody there in that room. Uh, uh, that's why I didn't knock on that wall. I've done that before. Uh, but, uh, but so the idea is when, we're, when we are acting in the Lord's name, we are acting under His authority. Uh, and hence, doing His will. We are doing what He wants. And we are doing what He would do if He were there. So when I'm praying in the Lord's name, I'm, I'm praying under His authority. That assumes, of course, that I'm praying according to His will, as Jim pointed out. But I'm praying under His authority. And so I have this remarkable authority when I go to God and I pray in the name of Jesus... It's, it's like I am speaking to the Father with the authority with which Christ would speak to the Father. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Or when I act, when I receive a little child in the Lord's name, it's what I'm doing is I'm, I'm treating that child and I'm acting towards that child like Jesus would if He were here, if He were actually physically here and I receive this child, I'm doing it like Jesus would do it. And this is what sanctifies everything we do as Christians. That we can do it in the Lord's name. So Paul says to the Roman Christians, when you receive this woman who is herself a child of God, 
who herself has been redeemed out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. When you receive her, you do it with the authority of God. You do it with the authority of Christ. And you do it as though Christ Himself were standing there. If Christ were in Rome, and Phoebe came to Rome, what would Jesus do? <laughs> it's the New Testament version of what would Jesus do, right? And he would receive her. Well, how would he receive her? <clears throat> how are we to receive her? Or how are the Romans here just supposed to receive her? He says, receive her in the name of the Lord. What? Hint, it's in your text. <laughs> in a manner worthy of the saints. Okay. Now, a little bit of question here about whether he means receive her, uh, uh, receive her as a saint would receive her, or receive her as a saint ought to be received. Okay. Those two different issues. So the question is whether or not I'm, whether or not uh, the emphasis is on the one receiving or the one being received. And, and I think in the context, the idea, the emphasis uh, seems to me to be uh, on the one being received. So, in other words, he's saying in the Lord's name, under his authority and, and acting as he would act if he were there physically. I want you to receive this woman as any saint would deserve to be received. So, so there's a certain reception that we give to the children of God that we don't give to other people. Simply because they are the children of God. Simply because they are saints. Okay, And there here again, this is just another example of Paul using the word saints in reference to anybody who's a believer. It's not somebody who, you know, the great authorities and powers that be somewhere in Rome have decided that this one special person is a saint and we're going to have this special ceremony as they did here a few uh, weeks ago to make another saint. Well, I got news for them. There have been a lot of saints made in the last month. And I don't know if Rome knows about any of them. Okay? They probably know about some of them. Okay? But there have been a lot of saints made. There have been thousands, maybe millions of saints made in the last month. And they're made when they come to Christ. Okay? When they're, when they're redeemed by Christ and transformed by Him. They are made holy ones. That's what the word means. And, and so he says, he says, there's a certain reception that holy people deserve. And I want you to make sure that when you receive Phoebe, you receive her like a holy person ought to be received. Like a saint ought to be received. Now, of course, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go on, that, you know, the whole idea of hospitality is a big thing in the New Testament and it doesn't just apply to believers. We are to be hospitable and kind and gracious and welcoming to all people, of course, uh, with a few uh, minor exceptions, major exceptions, I should say. Okay, But generally speaking, we are to d display that attitude, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, so if somebody comes to my home and they're not a believer, I would receive them, I would welcome them, I would show them love. 
and graciousness and, and show them that I am glad to have them in my home. But if a believer comes into my home, if a Christian comes into my home, I should ratchet it up. I should, I should, I should, you know, notch it up a few notches because this person is not just an average run-of-the-mill person. This person is a son or daughter of God. And they deserve some special treatment. I am. <laughs> I am. <laughs> but of course, that's a two-way street. So. So expect the balloons and the and the and yeah uh, when you come to my house. I have a question about yeah. The, your conclusion here is that it's the authority, the receiver in the Lord is talking about authority, and I when I read that, I thought about it as being you're in the spirit, you're walking in the spirit, and you would receive her in that way. So I kind of wondered why you uh well I, I include both the both the authority and the representative aspect of it okay uh, uh, I, I just because I make that connection with the the idea of in the Lord is so close to associated within the name of the Lord in the name of the Lord and other places in scripture uh, but certainly we we can't preclude the other aspect of it because everything we do yeah. ought to be done in the spirit for sure. Yeah. Good point. Okay. So, so one of the things I think about here is how do we receive Christians? Well, I have, I have a, I have a way I receive Christians. Okay. I've got a hierarchy. Okay. And if they agree with me, if we're theologically on the same page, if they go to my church, Okay, then I'll really lay it out for them big. Okay, but if they go to some other church and maybe you know we don't agree on this issue or that issue, you know, then you know I'll I'll receive them, but you're not quite with the enthusiasm. <laughs> and some of that's understandable. I mean, if you go to my church, you know, I know you, and we're, you know, we we have a we have a connection there. So, so some of that is natural, but some of that, I believe, is sinful. Some of that is is that we have these, you know, it's that old Romans fourteen thing again. You know, okay, if you're if you're one of the strong and I'm one of the weak, or if I'm one of the uh, Oh, the other way around. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, then, then I don't receive you with the same enthusiasm. But there's none of that. He doesn't ask the Romans. He doesn't tell the Romans. Now listen, you know, she qualifies in all your little doctrinal points, so you receive her. The basis of the reception of her is that she is a sister in Christ, and so you you receive her. In the name of the Lord, in a manner that is worthy of the saints. But then he goes on, and he says, uh, "He says I want you to help her in whatever matter she may have need of you." Okay. So he gives them this instruction that that they're to not only receive her and welcome her into their fellowship, but she's coming to Rome and she may need some help. 
Okay. And he doesn't specify what the help is. In fact, he leaves the door open. He says, whatever help she may need. Whatever matter she may need. Pardon? I was thinking of something. Uh, what if it's somebody, somebody raised the issue a little bit, female minister of the Unitarian Club, what if there's somebody you probably can't fellowship with? Well, in that case, it'd be a, no, it's not a question. I'm an unbeliever. I mean, yeah. how do you, I mean, you're just polite to them, but how do you bring that up? Well, I think the circumstance, the circumstance, the situation would dictate how you would respond. If somebody comes to me who is professing the name of Christ and I don't believe they're saved, then that opens up another whole, yeah, you know. Like that would be worse than an unbeliever. An unbeliever Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there, yeah, and, and there's an issue. Is it somebody who's professing Christ and they're not, a, and they're just, not, and they're not saved, but they think they are saved, but it's pretty clear they're not? Or is it somebody who is a false teacher? Okay, now that opens up another whole issue. I would clearly deal with those two people differently. I would, I would easily receive into my home somebody who, uh, somebody who professed the name of Christ, but they didn't really seem to be saved. You know. It'd be an opportunity for me to witness to him, to explain to him. So, but I wouldn't receive him as a believer, but I'd receive him uh, as, as a friend. But if it's a false teacher, if it's somebody who is leading people astray, then, you know, Jesus' response to the Pharisees or Paul's response, you know, that kicks in at that point. So, uh, so what we're talking about in this context is somebody who's clearly a believer. Uh, somebody who's clear, although, as I said, we may have differences of opinion on things. Well, so then the instruction is to, to help her and, uh, and whatever matter. And what's interesting here, and this is part of the reason we make some of the conclusions we do about who she is and what she was up to, is that the word matter there and whatever matter is the same word that's translated in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as lawsuits. Okay, so so it it seems to carry with it the connotation of some kind of business issue or legal issue that she is confronting or that she may confront when she gets to Rome. And it could be things like lodging and transportation and things like that, or it could involve actual, you know, issues before the courts, so to speak, and some kind of legal issue or some kind of business issue. But it doesn't have any particular spiritual connotation to it necessarily. So I conclude from that that she is not there as a missionary. She's not gone there for missionary purposes. She's gone there to deal with these matters, whatever these matters were. Okay, And they probably had something to do with her business or legal issues or something like that. And, and so she's gone and, and he anticipates that because she's a, she's a strange woman in a strange town, in a strange city, the great uh, metropolis of Rome, uh, she may need some help. She may need some people to greet the skids for, okay? And he says, that's your job, Christians. That's your job, okay? Now, people do this in the world all the time, right? We have, you know, mentoring and networking, and we have all these kind of things that go on in the everyday business world, you know? Uh, somebody knows somebody, and, and, uh, and they're... You know, their son or their father or somebody's coming to your city. And and so they write and say, would you would you help them out? Because they've got, you know, they've got to make some connections. They've got to accomplish their time. Would you help them out? Would you 
uh, and actually the, uh, the word there uh, has the idea, just make yourself available to them, okay? Be their helper, and, you know, and, and we do this. And so, uh, actually, there's a whole books written about networking and how to network within the business world. And, as a, and I'm all for that kind. I think that's a great idea. I think it's a great thing. And then there's the whole idea of mentoring. You take somebody kind of under your wing and you teach them and you, 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 you help them learn the ropes of whatever it is. And, and uh, so, these kind of things are done in the world all the time. But it's different here. You know why it's different here? Because here it's done in the Lord's name. You see the difference? Suddenly, what's just an ordinary, you know, just a nice, decent, good thing to do becomes something with eternal significance. Because I can do it in the Lord's name. Because I can do it for this person like Christ would do it if he were in that place. In fact, he is because he has me there. And so, so the way we help one another as believers is not just in the, quote, spiritual thing, but we help one another as believers in any way that one another need help. But it has been elevated to this whole new level because everything we do for one another, we can do because that's what Jesus would do for us. And you know He would. You know how you know? You know how I know you know you, He would? Because when you pray... You say to the Lord, give us this day our daily bread. So you don't just pray for spiritual things, do you? You pray for the everyday mundane affairs of life. And you expect that Christ hears that and will do that for you. So when I as a believer show up in a strange town and I run into some other believers and I need somebody to show me where there's a good mechanic to get my car fixed, they, they help me find that, or they may even fix my car for me. But it's different than if I just ran into an ordinary Joe, because when this person does it, they're a believer, and they're doing it in the I hope they're doing it in the Lord's name. And, and suddenly it's, it's God is answering my prayer through this person. Not just in the so-called what we think of as spiritual things, but in the everyday mundane affairs, uh, mundane affairs of life. And so, so this is what he wants the Romans to do for this woman Phoebe. He wants them to just look after whatever she needs. It doesn't preclude spiritual things, but it certainly includes. The everyday, the mundane, or what we would normally think of as secular things. And I can be Christ's servant to that person in that situation. So, so I am to then help her in whatever matter she may need help. But there's a reason. Of course, the main reason is she's a sister in Christ. But the other reason, Paul states, is what? She has been a helper. Now, what's interesting is Paul uses a different word here. When he told the Romans to help her, he used a word that had the idea of uh, just making yourself available to her. Okay? But when he says... 
she has been a helper of many, he uses a different word, which carries with it the idea of patronage, to be a patron. She has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, what is a patron? Okay. It's, yeah, okay. It's a, if somebody supports, typically it's a financial supporter. Okay. Uh, and in the ancient world, uh, patronage was a big thing. Uh, and, and you would have somebody who would, who would agree to become your patron in some endeavor or something that you were seeking to do. So it was kind of like they'd take you under their wing and they would make sure that you had all the, particularly the financial resources that you needed to accomplish whatever it was you want to do. We have patronage today. It's used quite a bit. We use patronage in the arts. You know, if you go to the Oklahoma City uh, Symphony and you uh, sit down, you pull open your program, and what's the first thing you see on the first pages of your program? You see all the patrons of the symphony, right? These are the people who are the financial supporters because in spite of the high price of your ticket, it's not enough. <laughs> okay? They can't finance this orchestra just on the high price of your ticket. Okay? So they need more money than that. So we have patrons of the arts. In the Renaissance, that's a, a really big thing. You had patrons of the arts and you had these great artists that we all know and we know, but they couldn't make any money painting those beautiful paintings, okay? So they needed somebody to be their patron, to pay, to support them so they could paint those beautiful paintings that we're enjoying 500 years later. Okay, so we have patrons of the arts. We have patrons of athletics, right? Uh, we call them donors nowadays, right? Okay, so we have the big donors. And if you're a patron of the OU football team, then you probably get a special booth up in the stadium to sit in, okay? But that booth is not worth all the money that you have given to the university to help finance the football program. So we have patronage uh, in sports. Um, and, uh, pardon? And all the nonprofit organizations. So, so we have patronage today. Well, this is the idea that Phoebe had been a patron, it says, of many. And apparently, in the context, he means many believers. Now, I don't know in what way. We don't know any more about it than that. But this may be the sense in which she was a servant of the church in Concrea. So it may have been that she was helping somehow to financially support the endeavors and the work of the church in Concrea. We're not clear on that. But we are clear that she has been, in some sense, a patron of many, and he says, of Paul as well. And since this has been her life, you want to make sure that you're a helper to her in any way you can. But see, he's used two different words. So he's not expecting the people in Rome to be her patron. She probably doesn't need a patron. She is apparently wealthy because she's been in a place to help finance all these other things that have been going on. So she apparently doesn't need money, but she may need other things. And so, so the idea is you have different kinds of people doing different kinds of help. And they're doing the kinds of help that God has enabled them to do. Okay? So the people in Rome are greasing the skids, uh, so, so to speak, for uh, Phoebe. And Phoebe is using her finances to help support the work of God, etc., 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 etc. So... Uh, so this is the picture we get of her. Well, that's enough about Phoebe. Then we go on into the greetings. 
Uh, and he begins this long list of greetings. And as I mentioned last week, some people look at this long list of greetings. He greets 26 specific people and then several different groups of people. But he, but he greets 26 different people, uh, 24 of them by name and, and, and then a couple others that he just indicates who they are. Uh, and some people have argued that, well, why would Paul send a greeting to so many people in a church he's never been to? How would he possibly know this many people? And so they have concluded from that that Romans 16 probably doesn't really belong to Romans. It probably originally was attached to some other epistle. And the most likely suspect tends to be, uh, among these people, some letter to Ephesus. So they think, well, this was written, this is actually a greeting to people in Ephesus because Paul had been, spent much time in Ephesus, and of course he would know all kinds of people in Ephesus. And, and so the conclusion is that Romans really ends at the end of chapter 15. Some actually say at the end of chapter 14. But, but chapter 16 is really just kind of somehow later on been attached. Okay? Now, I don't believe that. And for several reasons. One is, we don't have any manuscript evidence that chapter 16 was sometime, somehow later added to the book of Romans. Okay, and, and all the manuscript evidence, chapter 16 belongs with the rest of the book. Okay, uh, so we don't have any, uh, any manuscript evidence. Another reason is, when you think about it, if Paul was writing to a church where he knew all kinds of people, and he specifically greets 26. What does that do? Who am I, Yeah, why didn't I get names? You know? So it's very unlikely that Paul would greet 26 people in Ephesus. He probably knew hundreds. And if he leaves some out, he's going to offend somebody. Okay? So the fact that he lists 26 people is probably a pretty good indication that he's not writing to a place where he knows everybody. Okay? The second, uh, the final reason is it's perfectly understandable why Paul would know so many people in Rome. Paul is a widely traveled, highly influential person. Rome is the capital of the world. And all kinds of people are traveling back and forth. And we have two examples right here in Romans. We have Phoebe and we have uh, uh, Prisca and Aquila, who we're going to talk about here in a second. So, we know that people are constantly going back and forth to Rome. Paul's widely traveled. He's highly influential. It's very likely that he would know a number of people who at that time are in Rome, or he would know about them. He would have heard about them. Some of these people in this list may be people Paul didn't know personally, but he knew their reputation. And so he's greeting them. And so he begins then with his greeting to Prisca and Aquila. He starts right off the bat with them. And, uh, and we're running low on time, so we're not making a lot of progress here. But let's just begin to touch on Prisca and Aquila because these people are really important people in the New Testament. Okay. Uh, Prisca is, of course, the woman. Uh, the other way her name is pronounced is Priscilla. Uh, so just if you remember that, then you can remember which one is the guy. I always used to have trouble remembering who's the man and who's the woman here. Prisca and Aquila, they both sound like women to me. Uh, but Aquila is the guy. And Prisca or Priscilla is the woman. Okay, and we learn about them in Acts chapter 18. And uh, in uh, uh, Paul's been in Rome. He's or excuse me. He's been in Athens, and he's just preached on Mars Hill in Athens. And you probably know that whole story. 
and then uh, and then eventually uh, he travels to Corinth. And in chapter 18, verse 2, it says, and he found when he got to Corinth, it says he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, that means Paul coming to Prisca and Aquila, because he was of the same trade and he stayed with them and they were working for by trade they were tent makers. And so, uh, so Paul has come to Corinth and when he comes to Corinth he finds this couple here. Uh, and this couple, uh, the man, Aquila, is originally from Pontus and on our map we had up here last week we had the uh, Asia Minor here and we had the Black Sea up here and Pontus is a Roman province here right on the south shore of uh, the Black Sea in northern Asia Minor. And this is where he hails from originally, but, by, but, but then at some point he has moved to Rome and he lives in Rome and he's married to this uh, woman. And he, of course, is a Jew. Presumably she is also. And, uh, and so they are Jews and they are living in Rome. But when we started our study in Romans, clear back in chapter 1 and we did our introduction, one of the things we learned about was this expulsion of the Jews from Rome. Okay? It was a big deal. It had a profound impact on the church as we've seen and gone through the things we learned at the, in the introduction in chapter 1 and the things we talked about in chapter 14 about the conflict between Jew and Gentile, etc. Uh, we understand that there's, you know, this is a big thing this, and it profoundly affected the church in Rome. So, so Prisca and Aquila, who by this time apparently are believers, because when they arrive in Corinth, or by the time Paul arrives in Corinth, they're pretty clearly believers. So, so they are expelled along with all the other Jews, and they end up in Corinth. And Paul comes to them, and it says they are, uh, Aquila and Paul are of the same trade. They're tent makers, and so they work together. And there's a lot to be said right there. It teaches us something about missionary endeavor and bivocational ministry and, and, and things like that. Paul, obviously, and we see this in other places in his writings, that Paul did not completely rely upon the contributions of others, but oftentimes helped to finance and support himself through his own work. Okay? And that is apparently what he's doing in the early months in Corinth until he receives some help from Timothy and Silas. They come down and then he devotes himself entirely uh, to his ministry. But, but initially, he's, he's supporting himself and he's in the construction business. He's constructing tents, okay? And, uh, and Aquila is uh, in the same business. And so, they go into cahoots together or at least they work together. And so, what we see is uh, Aquila and Priscilla have brought Paul into, his, into their home and they begin to work together uh, on, a, uh, on a level uh, uh, in the so-called secular world, but they also begin to minister together so that Paul here in Romans 16 says they are my fellow workers. And he's not talking about them helping him make tents. He's talking about how they have worked with him in the gospel. But we're out of time. And these people are really important and they've had a real profound effect on the church and the future of the church. Uh, and particularly in Corinth, as we'll see, uh, through the life of another man that they influence. So we'll look at all of that next week. So hang with us. We'll get through these first couple of verses, first few verses eventually. So thanks.